everybody. So if somebody could type in yes to ensure that my microphone is working, that would be fantastic. And we're going to start getting to the questions. So let me take a sip of water here before you get going. I think I got enough water here for, for an hour. I think I'm good. If I drink all that, I'll be in trouble. I'll need to go take a bathroom break. Um, so my name is Andrew Krause, um, one of the co-founders here at InventRight. Stephen Keys, our other co-founder. And we co-founded InventRight 21 years ago. And we've been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since to license their products. So when you license a product, it's that big company's money, their workforce, sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising. You don't need to hire employees. And their existing distribution, maybe they're already in 30,000 stores, for example. So when you license, you don't need to say things to me or anybody else about, I need, I need funding. I need fun. You know, no, you don't. You don't need funding. Um, you don't need to hire employees. You don't need to worry about starting a business per se. Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a business if you're working on licensing to companies and then they're taking all the work from there, if you want to call that a business. But you don't need to hire employees. You don't need a single employee. Um, and to be honest, the retailers really don't like one SKU, one product, brand new companies. They're really not interested in buying products from you. They're afraid you're going to not deliver on time. You're going to have quality control issues. You're going to have money issues, all these things. So when you license to that big company, you are that big company. And they believe that big company that already has five products in their store can deliver. They know they have a reputation. So when you license to big companies, you are them. And you can think big. So for them to sell, it depends on the product, 20,000 units, 50, half a million units, 2 million units, it depends on the type of product it is, right? It's not craziness. But for you to be able to do that would be very, very difficult. Um, and you, we really don't want you to mortgage your house and home and get yourself into financial trouble. And so with licensing, all that financial risk is off on the company that you license to. So um, I don't see anybody that said yes into the chat yet that you can hear me. So it was good to confirm. Um, my typical browser wasn't working, so I'm using this browser. So hopefully it's working. Can somebody type in yes? There we go. Thank you, Jeff. Okay, we're good. All right, now everybody's typing yes. Okay, okay, stop, stop, stop. All right, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, all right, so let's start with Kevin here. I'm gonna to try to be pretty equal in that if there's some person asking like four questions and there's somebody that I didn't get to yet, I'm gonna to try to go to them and jump back. Um, this entire hour is completely free. So I'm just gonna tell you guys now, sometimes I say it at the end, which I will say at the end, but um, the way you can thank us and thank InventRight for giving an hour of our time for free to answer your questions, and we are experts, we've been doing this for over two decades, um, is to subscribe to our channel. So click on subscribe, click on the little notification icon, then watch more of our videos and give them thumbs up. That's the way you could say thank you to me for, for giving this kind of free advice. And then of course, if you want more help, you can go to inventright.com and you can check out all our free resources. There's a big blue button with free resources, but you can also check out our coaching program. So that's inventright.com. I'll type it in here. Type. I didn't have it ready to paste, so I'm going to type it in. There you go. Okay. So there's a couple things on that page at inventright.com. One is free resources in the upper right hand corner of the homepage, and there's a lot of incredible free resources that we have 
And then the other thing is if you see a pop-up uh, for a webinar series, sign up for that. We're doing a year-long webinar series um, on the InventRight 10-step system. You can also take a look at our book, One Simple Idea, that has our InventRight 10-step system. Um, and then if you want us to guide you through it, which is when you see, I don't know if you, how many of you are subscribed to our newsletter, when you see our students licensing every week, it's because they have that one-on-one -on -one coaching. Anyway, done talking all about that. Let's jump in here. Uh, Kevin says, hi, Andrew. I've reached out to 10 companies, 20 companies so far out of my list of 40. Um, I've only recently received permission today from one company to send my sell sheet, and it's getting passed on by their design team. If you reached out to 20 companies, I don't know what you define as reaching out, but if you reach out to 20 companies and only one said yes, we'll send you can send us a sell sheet, something's wrong. Um, the three main ways that we guide our students to reach out to companies is LinkedIn, the phone, and email. And yes, Kevin has been watching us or he just knew it intuitively. It's always a good idea, really essential based on what we teach, is to ask permission to send your sell sheet, which is a one-page advertisement for your product. It's not about if we only get 2% of the market, we'll get rich, or I want to partner with you, or need funding for this, or long rambling emails. It's one-page advertisement. It's a PDF that you can send to a company, and it's not for them. That's a dramatic pause. It's not for them. No, the video is not stuck. I'm just saying that to be dramatic and silly, get your attention. But it is for their customer, okay? So it's not talking about how you're going to get rich and all this. It's an advertisement. So they're selling dog toys. It's a dog toy for their customer. It's a, it's a sell sheet, you know? And the sell sheet will typically have a lot of the same stuff that you would see on, the, on a packaging, right? Picture of the product, benefit statement, bullet points, et cetera. So um, hopefully that was helpful. So let's finish with Kevin's question. By the contact, I mean the company, by, con, by the contact I made in the company, any advice what to do after I send them a sell sheet? How do I keep the ball in my court? I know you're going to say, get on the phone with them, but, but do I wait? Um, until they at least see the sell sheet, thanks, apolo apologies for the long question. No, it's a great question, Kevin. So um, no, I'm not going to tell you to get on the phone. If you got permission to send the sell sheet, now I don't know. Okay. For the one that you got permission, for the one that you got permission to send the sell sheet to, give them some time. Two, three weeks, you know, to let them take a look at it and then you get back to them. Um, for if you're reaching out on LinkedIn and just crickets, maybe you're not reaching out saying the right thing. Um, or maybe you just need to reach out again. But realize when you reach out on LinkedIn, and somebody's added you as a contact, it doesn't sound like maybe you're not using LinkedIn, but because um, if you reached out to 20 companies and they haven't got back to you, it's like they added you to their LinkedIn, usually they'll get back to you if that's the case. So, but realize when you send somebody a message on LinkedIn, it shows, right? And it shows in their direct messages. And then if you send it again a week later, once they see the new message, they'll see the chain of the prior message. So conducting yourself professionally on LinkedIn is very important because they'll see the chain of what you sent and when. So that's a little different with an email, right? They don't even remember the last email. If, if, if you send a new email, 
um, then, you know, unless you keep that chain together, which if you send them a sell sheet and they said they would take a look at it, it's great to have that email chain. But if you're just emailing them again, you don't have to have that email chain. You'd be like, oh, they're busy. They didn't see it. I'll just send it again. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't think that's your question, though, Kevin, for that one company that said, would we see it? And it said you said their design team um, passed on it. Um, I'd say just keep reaching out. And, you know, the thing that I can tell you that if you're a little irritated by the answer is we give that same answer to our students. We find that people, when they're new to this, they don't understand the volume of outreach they need to do. Now, when I say volume and it makes it sound like difficult or something, it's not. But it's it's you need to be a very persistent, polite pest. OK. And even with our students, with all the training and a coach guiding them every week, quite often people will complain, oh, I reach out to 20 companies, nothing yet. Coach is like, so that's normal, you know, and then you start reaching out, doing some different things or just reaching out again. And maybe on the second or third or fourth time, they respond, oh, yeah, send me a sell sheet. Or, oh, no, we're not open to ideas, if it's one of the few that aren't open to ideas. Um, and um, But, yeah, sometimes if you're not getting traction on LinkedIn, that same person, they have a LinkedIn profile. But they're never looking at it. And they're not adding you to their LinkedIn. So you can't send them a message if you don't add them to your LinkedIn. And you don't want to send a custom connection request. You just want to send standard connection request. So, yeah, sometimes, you know, Kevin, what you're saying is picking up the phone and that same company that was completely non-responsive on LinkedIn is the gatekeepers like, oh, that would be Bob. And he likes email. Here's his email or whatever. They might say a, a litany of different things. And so you got to use a lot of different methods, email, phone, and LinkedIn. And if you're using all those three and you've reached out to those 40 companies, you've only done 20 so far of your 40, but you haven't done them. You might have, and I don't know, Kevin, what you have done or haven't done, but I know you reached out at least once, but if you think once is enough, it's so totally not, okay? So if that's helpful, great. And we have to say this to our own students. You know, now, fortunately, the coach is right there along with them. Okay, what did you do exactly? The coach is like, well, that's not enough. You reached out to them once. You think that's enough? One email? People are busy. You know, Or one LinkedIn message or one phone call where you couldn't figure out who to reach. So um, just keep going, man. You, you know, I, I, it's very rare that I see an InventRights student of ours, like a company, extremely rare, like stop bugging me because we teach our students to be professional. Now, they might say that to inventors outside of InventRight because they're def the kind of bugging that some inventors do is not the kind of bugging or being a polite pest that we do. It's very different. And, and so you don't send a LinkedIn message and expect a response in a week. You know, you might not get it. And, um, you know, you might send a sell sheet. And this, this is the one that really pisses our students off. Like they send the sell sheet. They're so excited that, you know, they finally got a hold of the person. They're like, yeah, send it on over. And they send it over and they don't get a response like in a week. And they're like freaking out. I'm like, what are you doing? Be patient. And the, the, the recipe I'm going to tell you, which we tell our students too, to be patient, is to reach out to more companies. So if, if you send a sell sheet and they haven't got back to you in a week, I'd wait another week. I'd wait at least two weeks. They're busy. And then I would resend it. I know you're busy. Just following up. Let me know if it's it's right match for you or, or might you might be interested. If it's not, just reply, not a right match. Make it easy for them to say no, because you don't want, you want to check that one off. Okay, that's one. And now you got that contact, 
and you got their email, you got their phone number, and you sent them one product, which basically means that they're open to receiving another. But a lot of inventors don't take it that way. They're like, oh, they didn't like that idea. I'm done with that guy. Come on, don't do that. No, they received your idea. They, they said not interested in that particular one. Um, so you're going to send them more in the future. You know, and that's why one of the things in the long run that we talk to our students about is to work on a project and projects in a particular category, you start to build up your Rolodex. And then you start not having to do this initial outreach that Kevin is a little um, irritated by. It's normal. And if you're irritated by Kevin, good. I love that because it shows you're in the game. If you're not frustrated with something about this process when you're starting it, um, you're not doing the work. You should be. Um, but you, and you start to learn like what normal is like, okay, I got lucky with these companies I only sent it once and they responded but these other ones over here, this guy over here, man, I need to send it to him eight times, you know, before I, before I got any sort of response. Um, but that's not eight times over eight days. It's, it's a lot of time in between reaching out. So you give them time. Otherwise now you're one of those wacky inventors that's pestering them. But the key is, Kevin, you've got 40 companies. You've got plenty of other companies to reach out to. But instead, what you're focusing on, I'm, I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying what a lot of people focus on is the 19 that you couldn't get into. But you're new to this. You don't know what you're doing. But if you keep doing this and it's not working, I mean, if you approach 20 companies, you only got into one, something's wrong there. Now, if you only approach those 20 companies, you only sent one LinkedIn message, one email or something like that. No, the problem is you're not reaching out enough. Okay. Um, but if you approach those 20 companies three, four times, you're doing something wrong. And I don't think that's the case for you is my guess, because most people just don't do that. No matter how much we lecture, we, we have to twist our students arm to do it, but then we get them doing it. That's why our students are licensing stuff. We have students licensing every week because we make them do that. And I hate to use the word make, but we say you don't have a choice. And when you realize, like, compared to running a business, reaching out to each one of these companies, maybe some of them, two, three, four, five times or more, is nothing for work. It's nothing. But you feel like you're putting yourself out there. You're feeling vulnerable. Well, just don't. Just don't even think about it. Just freaking do it. And so hopefully that's helpful. Um, Caleb said, hi, Andrew, while performing a preliminary search on a new idea, how do you best cover the area when, for example, a widget holder, it could also be called many other things other than a holder. I hope my question makes sense. Um, okay, so he's saying when, he, when you do a market search, when you look at all the other products in the space you mentioned, so for those of you that don't know, that are, that are new, that should be the very first thing you do when you come up with an idea. I would say the same day or the next day, because here's the problem. The longer you think about an idea and you don't study all this and what you saw at the store is not studying the marketplace. That's completely and totally half-assed. Well, I've never seen it. No, not that. You're in depth spending two to four hours studying Google images, studying Google shopping, going on Amazon. And for industrial products, Google images will, will, will do the trick for you. I know industrial products aren't on Amazon. I get that. Um, but you're spending a ton of time. And yeah, I mean, one of our coaches, Courtney, said she can do that sometimes in 20, 30 minutes, but she's very experienced. And I would say now, I would say you need to spend at least an hour 
but and why not two or three? But um, so Caleb, when he's studying the marketplace, is saying, well, I don't know what words to use. So we should try to use some words to get started. It's kind of like patent searching too, market searching. And then you start to see similar, some products in that space. Oh, they use a different word. Okay, I'm going to start using that word. You know, so uh, a lot of inventors really suck at keyword searching, which kind of boggles my mind because we have to keyword search everything on Google these days. So, but a lot of you guys really suck at it. So, but I'm going to tell you that's okay. So use the keywords that you can think of and then start looking at the products and then go through the description of the product and, and you'll find some other words and then start using those words. So even if you suck at it, you can still do a good job because you're going to do find what you can and then look for more words and go from there. And then, you know, if there's somebody in your family going, here's what I'm doing and here's the words I'm using, more than likely, they'll probably come up with different words than you would. Or just tell them what you're doing. Don't tell them what keywords you're using. And then say, what words, words do you use? And I bet nine times out of 10, they might come up with different words. Now, what you say to them is kind of leading them down a certain path. But you go, here's the widget. Here's the product. Uh, what would you, what words would you use? Why not? You know, friends and family, people you trust, not strangers and stuff. But, um, and then the other thing I'm talking about is do your best, look at the products, then realize here's some words I saw in this one over here. Maybe I'll start searching. Oh, crap, I just found some more. Okay. So even if you're not good at it, you can still do a good job. If you're really, really bad at it, it can be problematic. But I can't tell you how many inventors I've talked to, not invent right students, where you guys have heard me say this before if you've been here a while. Um, and they'll tell me what the product is. And I, I, I can get a verbal and I'm like, oh, I get it. And they're like, oh, he gets me. I'm like, that's great. I get you. But we do invention coaching and a company, if you said the same thing, probably would never understand what you just said because they don't have the time. So, but anyway, I would get it. And then I would just, oh yeah, I got it. I got it. And then I would search and like in 30 seconds, I would find the exact same freaking thing. I mean, so some people really suck at it. So either rely on your friends and family to get some initial keywords or do your best and then look at these other products and then to find some more keywords to keep searching. But especially if you're new to it, I think the best piece of advice I would say is spend at least two solid hours doing searching for products in that space. And so even if you kind of suck at it, if you're doing it that long and you're finding other keywords, you'll probably, you'll probably start to come around, you know? Um, let's see. Thoughtful Jones said, hi, Andrew. I wanted to refile my PPA. I have not disclosed. He's made a public disclosure. In other words, is it possible to refile using smart IP? I was, it was just filed previously by an attorney and was $545 just to refile. I would like to do it if possible. I'm not planning to add any new info. Just wanted to get the new file date, but only pay 75 bucks. So if you previously filed it and a patent attorney didn't, you have that provisional patent. If you don't, just ask your attorney for it. You have every right to have that. And then you can just file that provisional, the attorney filed, and just say, I'd like a copy of my provisional if they didn't give it to you. And, um, and then just file that provisional and just pay the $75 filing fee. And, you know, and I like that you said, oh, I don't have any new info to it. That's a great opportunity to go, okay, what did I miss? I'll just take what the patent attorney did and I'll add that additional info. Um, 
And there, there are, you know, I talked to um, somebody today and there are some patent attorneys that are just a little scammy or not, uh, not really honest, not really forthcoming, like to keep their clients in the dark. And I talked to this guy this morning and he got taken by one of these. The patent attorney charged him $10,000 to file a provisional patent. And yes, yeah, some patent attorneys will try to get more money out of you to say, oh, I'm going to file it like a full utility. So when you need to file a full utility, I only charge you this much more. Um, but I thought that was kind of ridiculous. And they, they know that a lot of inventors are going to file a provisional, never do anything with it. So I could just tell by some of the email communication, what he said to me and everything too, that this guy was like, I'm going to get this money out of this inventor um, now, rather than getting a small amount, like $545 is a reasonable amount for a patent attorney to file a provisional. Um, hard to find them to do that, actually. Uh, and so I, it just, anyway, I, I'm helping the dude and uh, kind of get through it. I just felt bad for him because he really can't afford it. And so that kind of sucked. Um, uh, let's see, Kathy, how to handle an existing product that would benefit from using packaging that is on the market already? I have no idea if I could benefit from this. Any thoughts? Okay, so she's saying there's an existing product that would benefit from using packaging that's on the market. So, so she sees this particular product, then she sees some packaging solution. That's the product the package goes in over here. She's the product over here. So the way that I think you could utilize that and get some sort of intellectual property or patent protection and value to them is to look at the look at the product you want to use the package with. You obviously have recognized that if I take this packaging over here somewhere else and put it with this product, that would make sense and it would be helpful to make sales. Okay, so I would ask yourself with this packaging that's over here for another purpose, what would you change about it to make it even better for this existing product that they aren't using that type of packaging? What would you have to change? So you're looking for problems. Well. Yeah, they could use that packaging, but there might be problems with it being cost effective or not working as well. And so if you can find a way of changing that packaging so it'd make it even better to use on this other product over here, then you'd have a packaging innovation that you could license. Okay, But if they don't have to change anything about it, that packaging exists and you just want to make a suggestion. I mean, I'm, I'm sure this isn't your invention. You just tell the, the company, oh, you should put it in a blister pack. You'd sell more. People could see it better. No, that's not an invention you can license. But if you make it really a, a unique, different type of packaging than what's out there, because it would work better with this, then you'd have something to license. OK, so but otherwise, it's just like a helpful suggestion. And I don't see anybody paying you for that. Um, hmm. my two cents is their handle. What are some of the most important attributes for a new student when they sign up and invent right? Um, yeah. So I would say one of the most important attributes are that you're a good listener and that you take action. So what's the point of a coach guiding you and telling you what to do if you're not going to listen and you want to go off on all these tangents? And the vast majority of our students are like that. They're in that they're like, yeah, tell me what to do. That's why I signed up. I, oh, for that product, I should do this and this. And the coach is explaining to you why it would make sense to do it that way. Um, that's hugely beneficial. So um, be willing to take direction. 
and always question the coach. If you're like, hmm, this isn't making sense, say, well, coach, this isn't making sense to me. Why am I doing this? Coach, well, if you don't do this, this and this can happen. And then you move forward to the confidence going, oh, okay, this makes sense. So whenever, so I would say a, a good personality trait is question your coach, but they're going to tell you why it's going to make sense. And then you can move forward with confidence. Otherwise you might at certain points. I don't think that's a big issue. The other is taking action. It's kind of a, a shock to go from just dreaming up ideas to actually working on them, which is what we do with our students. So when you're an event right student, you're working on your freaking project every week and you're spending two to six hours every week. So it's the work, your work ethic is more important than your idea. If I had an event right student over here, this brilliant idea, I'm like, wow, it's so cool. Oh my God. And they're half-assing the work. And I got another event right student over here and there is, it's, it's, it's an improvement to a product. It makes sense. It would make sense. I can see somebody licensing that and they're really doing the work. They will license with just an okay product way faster or this person probably won't do it at all if they're half-assing the work. Oh, they're my three favorite companies. No, no, I don't want to. No, these are my three favorite companies. I don't want to contact those other 20 or whatever. There's a million things, that, different things that people do. So having a work ethic is way more important than your idea. Now, fortunately, that work ethic doesn't require you to quit your day job, run a business, manage employees, all this stuff. It just requires to reach out to 20, 30, 40 companies and present them with your sell sheet. You don't need to pitch them because your sell sheet is pitching them. Um, and do that work and be willing to get a bunch of no's. So have a work ethic and be willing to get a bunch of no's and realize every no moves you closer to a yes. And the other thing that I would say is realize you're not a one trick pony. You know, if this is the only product you're ever going to work on, you're going to be devastated if you don't license this product. Well, then you get the wrong attitude because some people license their second or third or fourth product. And if you can, for new products you work on, plenty of people have already blown a bunch of money on patents and prototypes, invest less than $300 per product or something about there. You always have the financial bandwidth to move on to your next idea. So go through the process knowing that the first time you do it is a little more frustrating because you're doing two things. You're learning to work to license the product and you're actually working on licensing a real product on that first product. But when I see people work on their second product, it goes two to 10 times faster. I don't know if it's 10 times, but maybe two to five times faster because everything is familiar. So realize and have a mindset like, yes, I, I want to license this product, but also always keep in mind, like I'm learning the skill. Like if, if you just don't take a second to go, oh, crap, I just got into all those companies or I got these companies showing interest. Or I had the conversation with this company, or I made a kick-ass sell sheet, or I filed my PPA. I thought that was so difficult. Now I realize it's not. Enjoy the journey as you take it. And there's nobody that knows that journey better than an event right coach. So celebrate all those victories along the way. Don't just celebrate standing at the top of the mountain, because then you're going to feel empowered all along the way. You know. So, wow, that was a really in-depth answer. So my two cents um, is their handle. That would be my advice. And if you do all, if you do that, have a work ethic, have a positive attitude. Don't hesitate to question your coach. But when they when you, they they tell you the reason why you're doing it, and you're like, no, okay, that makes sense. Just freaking do it then. You know, it's got to make sense to you though. I mean, you can't just blindly tell people what to do and not tell them why. 
You know, I, I don't think we always tell exactly why, but when people ask, we do, and there is a reason behind everything we do with our 10 step system. Okay. Um, Ethan said, happy President's Day, Andrew. Thank, thank you, Ethan. Uh, let's see. Raul says, hey, Andrew, is it possible to use different technologies from different industries to create an entirely new product in existing market? Absolutely. It's like mix, mix and match. You can take things from different industries, mix and match them. And as I was saying earlier, I think to, mm -hmm. I forget who it was, um, is... When you do that, think, okay, what's new? Yeah, I took something here and there and I made something new, but what's the problem with doing that? And maybe you're like, well, I don't think that would quite work. And they go, okay, but the problem is this. And when you come up with problems, you, you then come up, you're going to work on a solution. When you have a solution to a problem, you not only have a better product, but you also have something that's patentable. And we, our students license stuff all the time that they just get a provisional on, company doesn't care about the patent, they do a license deal, they still pay them royalties. A lot of people are shocked by that. So it's not always important. But when you look for problems and solve them, then you and then you have something that is more marketable and thus more patentable. But you always look to solve the marketing issue first, like how am I going to make this work? How is this marketable? How am I going to make this an intriguing product? Because patenting stuff, that is not on the intriguing product itself. What's the point of that? I mean, any of, I could guarantee that you guys would get a patent on every one of your inventions 100% of the time. If you put some really weak claim in there that's so narrow, the patent office will be like, sure, you can have that. They're probably thinking like, well, that's not gonna protect you, but I, you can get a patent every time. Patents don't mean that much, really. So make it marketable. And then when you patent around that core functionality that nobody else can do, then now the patent means something more, right? Um, so, Rule, that was a great question. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Super wave, wave, I can't, wave, super wave, let's call it that. Uh, I live in the UK and, a light, and get a licensing agreement within the US. Would you have to have a company in the US uh, for it to work. No, absolutely not. We've had students in over 65 countries. I had this woman on a French Polynesian island. The population of the entire island was a thousand people. They don't care, super wave. They don't care. They just care that you have a good idea. It doesn't matter where you live. And, you know, the UK is a little bit more old school. If it's a UK company, it's big in the US. That's as good as a US company, if you ask me. That's the same. But if it's a UK company that only sells in the UK, Europe's still a little bit more old school. They might say, well, who are you? Um, what's your track record? All that, what's your resume? You know, we don't get that over here. And you won't get it with European companies that are big in the US because you have US people working there. And in the US, we have this attitude like anybody can make it. So they're not asking you what your education is. They don't care. They just want that product. There's no difference between a super experienced inventor and you. It's just whatever the sell sheet is you're showing them. So you can have, you don't need a U.S. company, you don't need any of that. So you can you could definitely be in the U.K. and license U.S. company. We have tons of students do it. We had a student uh, not that long ago licensed to a U.K. company. You know, so I'm not saying you can't do deals in the U.K. You absolutely can. But if you, if you only super wave, if you only focus on the U.K you probably won't license anything and you're going to be beating your head against brick wall. It doesn't mean don't add some UK companies. 
you know, I know you want to represent your own country and all that, but you know, what you really want to represent is your product get people enjoying your product. Okay. And some of those U S companies or European companies, they might sell 80% of their product in the U S and 20% in Europe. So it might end up in the store down the street from you, you know? So definitely, um, Uh, Concrete said, hello, would it be a good idea to include an estimate of cost of goods on your email presentation to a potential agency? No, no, and no. You will never get a, a kind of price they would get. So if you get these costs, they will get way better costs than you ever could. Do not do that. Don't do it. Now, you might have it. And after they show interest, you might discuss it and go, well, I got some quotes. I don't think it's necessary. I got some quotes but you guys get way better prices than this. But that's after they show interest, probably not on the first call either even. So let them use their imagination. Um, If it's a product that has some serious, if you think they're going to look at it and go, oh boy, I don't even know how we would make this. So there's some serious issues. And you had contacted a manufacturer and overcome those issues. You could mention that. You know, I know it might be look hard here, but I got, I got that figured out. So if you're interested, let me know. That might be fine, but do not include costing. No, 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 don't do that. Um, Margie said, hi, Andrew. In a previous Q&As, you said we have to file the PPA in one, one sitting with the USPTO. Do you know how we could see the questions first and write up the PPA in a rough draft before filing? No, I think you're misunderstanding, Margie. What I said is, when you're actually filing it, not when you're writing it. Filing it is just putting your name and address and email and um, and paying the fee and uploading the, the PDF document that your provisional patent you've written is in, okay? So I've had people like, they, they get the provisional patent, they write it up, and then they go to the patent office and then they, you know, I don't know, Five o'clock runs around. They're like, oh, I'll finish up tomorrow. And then they come back and they're like, oh, my session timed out. I got to fill all this stuff out again. So Margie, you're not filling out the actual, there isn't, you're not talking about your invention in the application, in the application process. I'll clarify. You've got that all in a PDF. You've written it yourself. Now you're like, oh, I'm ready to file it. Then you're going to go in, fill out the forms, pay the fee, and you're going to upload provisional patent you've written. There is no series of questions the patent office is going to ask you when you're submitting a provisional that's going to like, oh, is your invention green? Yes. Is it this side? No, there's nothing like that. Okay. They will not give you that guidance. They do not give you that guidance. Um, We guide our students. We give our students a software solution that they can use to file a provisional patent application. And it, it does what you're talking about, Margie, which you can spend 10 minutes here or half an hour there, an hour there. And you, it, it will teach you. We have a patent attorney with a video walking you through it on how to write it. So uh, Margie, I bet you other people had that same question. So that was a great question. Thank you very much. Verman um, uh, said, what's a good percentage to negotiate when you don't have capital to build a prototype? Well, I don't think one has anything to do with the other. So um, first, first of all, our students license stuff all the time with a virtual prototype. So this thought that you need to build a production-ready prototype or even a working prototype is incorrect. Now, I'm not saying if, if you can go down the store and you cannibalize a product or 
you know, and you, you, you duct tape it together and you make it work um, and you change something about it. You screw a hinge on here and it looks terrible. And you just need to know yourself that it could work or you wanted to play around with doing it different ways. That's fine. I'm not against, we're not against making prototypes, but you're not selling your prototype. That's the big misperception people have. You're selling the benefit of your idea. So you could illustrate the benefit of your idea in a sell sheet with a virtual prototype. So we do virtual prototypes for a student that looks like what the product would look like. And so if you're asking yourself like, well, I don't know how this would be made. Look at products that are somewhat similar in the space and go, well, mine's kind of like that and kind of like that, but who's putting a hinge over here? And when they ask you, you could actually tell them that. Now they saw a beautiful virtual prototype in your sell sheet and they saw the marketing piece because what you're selling is not that stupid prototype. It's the benefit of your product. Now, a lot of times it's like, well, I know. So, so Vermin, if you're like, well, I know they can make it. I just can't make it. I don't have that. I don't can't do the electronics. I can't do this. I can't do that. That's fine. But if you're fairly certain that they can make it, who said you needed to make a prototype? And people have this grand, these misperceptions. They need that. Do a virtual prototype. If you're a student of ours, we do that for you, or you can get one elsewhere. And, and then when they ask you about it, go, yeah, you know, there's these other products. And see, that proves to them that you can make it. But then you're like, and I'm just changing this. Now, you can't always do that, but you can do it a good percentage of the time. But go fish and get the interest. And then if they light a fire in your butt, no, 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 we need a working prototype. First of all, a lot of time you can convince them to go ahead and, you know, maybe they have enough information. They maybe they don't, quite often, they don't want to make a prototype. They're like, oh, yeah, we get it. We'll get some quotes overseas, probably still in China these days. We'll see how that changes. But and we'll get some quotes. We just want to see if we can make this at a reasonable price. So they sometimes they just need enough information to give uh, overseas manufacturer to get a quote to make sure they can make it, make it a reasonable price. Um, sometimes they're going to put it back onto you, but not most of the time. Somebody's like, well, I don't even know how this works and our team doesn't have time to do this and that. Sometimes they'll make a prototype internally. And they'll, they'll do that and they'll do what you can't do. And other times they'll put it back on you, but hey, at least you got interest now, right? But to spend a ton of money on a prototype, like you said, you're worrying about getting funding to be able to make the prototype, like get the interest first. They will never run for the hills because you don't have a prototype. That's just so much garbage. And people will make you believe that. Mostly people selling prototypes <laughs> or just generally people believe that, but that's not true. So hopefully that was helpful. Great question, Vernon. Thank you. Uh, I think it was Vermin. Uh, let's see. Uh, G, G I can't pronounce the last. G says, I love all the products in the background. Yeah, that's just a small percentage of products for students of license. It just gets me super excited being an inventor and licensor. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, this is one that I bring up quite often. And this is a really cool product, guys. Um, I think I've shown this before on here. I'm not sure. But um, if we open it up, I love this packaging. You can see um, you, you basically you pour water in here and then you put this wedge in. It comes with the glass and then it freezes the ice so that it's frozen like this. So what's the benefit of that? So the benefit is when you're drinking whiskey or hard alcohol, ice cubes have more surface area and they'll melt quicker and you don't want that. And so it melts very, very slow. So it cools it off, but it doesn't water down your drink. And um, I, I'm not even going to say how much because I don't want to pitch the get rich quick stuff. But he's earning 
a lot of money on that product. Um, his name's Ryan Bricker, and he's earning just insane money on that product. Not everybody's going to earn that kind of money. And then he did the um, the cigar glass, so it, it holds a cigar, like it, it sticks. I don't know if we can see that here. Let's see. Uh, there we go. You can see there's kind of a hole for the cigar right there. Isn't that cool? Yeah. I don't smoke cigars or drink, so. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, I probably would if, if my body body would tolerate it. Um, edibles are legal here in Nevada, so hey, maybe maybe I've partaken those. I don't know, not sure, but <laughs> definitely not right now. But um, I just think alcohol is like uh, it's just toxic for people's bodies, and for, fortunately, I can't really tolerate it very well. I kind of get allergies and stuff when I drink um, alcohol. So that's built in for me. It's easy, but yeah, I used to really like a good beer, but anyway, um, enough about that. Uh, so yeah, I, I think you should get super excited about it because it is very viable and, you know, you might not have a neighbor that's licensed the product, but you have a neighbor that made money in real estate. And so, but there's tons of inventors that license products and make money, but it's just not something like people are talking about all the time. So it is very, very doable. Um, let's see. Uh, Dormatex is their handle. If I choose to venture my product, what's the process between filing a PPA and obtaining a patent? Do you start manufacturing and marketing your product right away, even if patent pending or no patent is obtained? So I can't, I can, I can, I can give you a little bit of advice there, but what we do is licensing. We do not teach people to venture products. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about venturing here. Um, if you have another job or a business, you're going to need to dump it. You cannot seriously venture a product um, and have a full-time business or, um, or, or have a full-time job. Okay. Now, yeah, you can make some products, sell it on Etsy or eBay or something, but that's not what most of you have in mind when you talk about making and selling your own product. Also, retailers do not like you. You know, you it's just imagine if if Bed Bath Beyond had 50,000 SKUs, Scott keeping units, different products, and everyone had a different vendor. They want to deal with a vendor that has 5, 10, 15, 20, 80 products. I mean, there's there's one company that one of our students licensed, they have 8,000 products. You know, so they don't want to deal with as many people. Also, you're not going to survive most of the time in any decent way as a one SKU one product company. So if you start a company for your one product, if you don't, you're going to work your ass off to get into any retail channels if you can do it at all. And then you're going to need to build up a product line. So one of the Bridge and the Gap companies that came on recently, we have these companies that come on and talk to our students, say, this is our company. This is what we're looking for. And they said, our models change. We don't do one product ever again. We only do product lines because that's what the retailers are telling us they want. And this is a DRTV company that typically will do one-offs, look for the big hit. So even they got to do product lines. So now uh, Dormatex is your handle. Um, now what you're doing is committing yourself to run a business for probably two to five years at the very least and launch an entire line of products because retailers will not put up with you very long um, with your one product. They just won't. So now it's a much bigger endeavor. You need to hire employees. You need hundreds of thousands of dollars just to barely get started, guys. You can't like have $50,000 and start a business. That's not going to work. You know, it's just not going to work. And sometimes people, they're really short-sighted and they just look at the manufacturing 
what about everything else? Oh my God, there's so many other costs other than just, well, I could make it for this. It's like, okay. And then your inventory is sitting around. You got employees. Who's going to sell it? You got this manufacturer's rep that comes on. He says, oh no, I got to have your, your East. I got to have the whole East coast for an entire year. He's not selling shit. And then you can't take it away from him, you know, and he's going to get those sales or all sorts of problems I could come up with. Um, so with that said, I'm still going to answer your question. Your question was filing a PPA. Um, you know, I would not file that PPA if you were venturing the product. Give yourself extra time until like the week before you go public with it. So that way you got the whole year the provisional gives you and then you can file a full utility. But you've got to file a utility within a year of filing a provisional and within a year of making a public disclosure. When you're licensing it's a gray area in that it's not public disclosure if you're just showing it to potential licensees privately. But once you go public with it, if you're selling it yourself, the one year on bar rule starts ticking. That's the legal term. And you're just toast. If you don't file a full utility within a year of making that public disclosure, you're screwed. You can you have no patent rights on whatever you publicly disclose. You could get a you could get it on an improvement you made. So what I would do if I was venturing um, Dormitex. Uh, is uh, file the provisional the the week before you're ready to start going out there, especially if you're thin financially. But if you're thin financially, you should be questioning whether or not you should be venturing this thing, you know? Um, so, you know, but anyway, so hopefully that was helpful. Uh, okay, Deidre said, hey, Andrew, haven't heard from man a manufacturing company that had launched my product. Okay. They have had it since January. Okay. That's not very long. And said, waiting for a response from multiple company campaign. Should I take my product back? I'm very confused, Deidre. Um, you haven't heard from a manufacturing company that had launched my product. They launched your product? Um, did you license it to them? They had, they had it since January. I don't know if you mean last January or this January. Waiting response from, from multiple company campaign. Should I take my product back? I don't know if you mean last year. I don't have enough information, Deidre, to go on there. Um, if you want to type in more details, we do have 12 minutes left. I'll, I'll try to page down to the bottom and, and see if I can help you out. But I don't have enough info to properly answer that. Um, Andrew says, hi, Andrew, two Andrews there. I uh, like your name. Great name. Uh, does a licensing company have the ability to distribute your products internationally? Yes. They're not a licensing company. So just, you know, I realize everybody's new here. They're a company, a brand. So you license to a brand that sells to the retailers where you want to be, right? And some of those companies only sell in the U.S. and Canada. And other ones sell in U.S., Canada, Asia, Europe, Australia, Africa, everywhere. It depends on the company. So they're basically going to do whatever they already do. So if the, but you could, when you do a licensing deal, if they're only in the U S and Canada, which is a lot, you could retain the rights for international sales. And it's not something you say on the first call, but you go, well, you guys aren't selling over there. You want worldwide rights? Really? Can I keep Europe? It's, you know, and you getting exclusive for the U S and Canada. So that's the way you can break it out. But they're not a licensing company. And I'm just correcting you in the words just so you're learning, Andrew. Um, they're a brand that manufactures and sells products in all the retailers where you want to be. And um, 
And so, yeah, some of them sell internationally. A lot of them do. Uh, we get students license stuff and the company ends up selling like 80% of the product in the U.S. and 20% overseas. And don't think they're, even they, and this is how expensive patents are, guys. Even they are quite often like, oh, yeah, we want to do the U.S. patent. We're not doing European patent. We'll just sell there. We don't care. We got good distribution. That's our protection. So don't expect them to, sp to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in patents around the world because that's what it freaking costs. And that is one of the things that a lot of inventors are very unrealistic about. If even large companies don't want to file patents around the world, what makes you think you should be doing that? You know, and, and I'm not telling you not to. I'm not providing legal advice. I'm just giving you a frame of reference there. But they'll sign a licensing deal where they got to pay you in those other countries. Our students do that all the time. Um, let's see. Uh, Boom said, done with that guy. LOL, I do that. I'm not sure what we're referring to there because it's on the timeline, but it sounds funny. Um, okay. Uh, gun, guns? Gun, Gunness? Sorry, I'm not pronouncing that right. Uh, hello, thank you so much for all the great advice. My question is how to license a medical product. Would you consider licensing medical products harder? If so, why? Yes, medical products are harder. Um, now, if it's a medical product that is something that shows up in the in the United States here, for those of you that are international, we have an aging population. There's tons of catalogs and websites where seniors buy stuff that help them. Something you add to your cane or your walker, you reach something from the top shelf, that sort of thing. Those aren't medical devices. They're like assistive devices for seniors, right? So that, no, not harder to do. But um, if it's a new scalpel, a new type of gauze, um, a new type of drip tube to go into an IV, all those sort of things. Yes, they're harder to license. Medical companies are obsessed with patents. So you need to have a pretty good understanding of how it's going to be made. And you need to, you need to have a patent around it. It could be a provisional patent. That's fine. But they're more obsessed with patents. Um, they're just harder to license to. There's a lot of money involved. It's just the way the industry goes. Um, so why are they harder? Because they're obsessed with patents. Um, because they pretty much expect patents. It could be a provisional and later follow utility. Um, they really want you to have some intellectual property. And like I said, our students license stuff all the time that uh, it's questionable if they could get a strong patent or not. And our students still license it, get paid royalties. It's probably not going to happen in medical. So that's what makes it harder. There needs to be something that's pretty solidly patentable in the medical industry. So Gunas, um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's kind of a cool name. Um, uh, yeah, that's why it's harder, but you can definitely do it. Our students have licensed medical stuff. Typically also, I think with medical, the volume is so huge, especially if this is disposable, that the money, it can really be quite a treasure chest project. Could be a lot. You could be making a lot of money, which is another reason why it's harder. Um, so those are kind of the, the main reasons why medical is harder. If you're really into medical, especially if you're a doctor or a nurse, I would go for it. We've had doctors, nurses, dentists, licensed stuff. Um, absolutely. Okay. Um, G said, you know, I already answered a question, but such a good question. I'm going to do it. How do you reach out to companies while working a nine to five job? LinkedIn. You can do that anytime. You can do it 2 a.m. in the morning. You can reach out to anybody on LinkedIn in the middle of the night. Also, you know, in most time zones, there's going to be a time maybe before work or after work. And, you know, we, our invent rights students have always been able to figure it out and a coach would guide them. We asked their particular scenario. And um, but 
with LinkedIn and reaching out on LinkedIn, you could definitely do that. Um, okay. G also said keyword searching is one of my favorite pastimes. It's a skill. Ha ha. Absolutely love it. That's great. And you guys should all, you know, I said that a lot of inventors really suck at keyword searching. Get good at it. You have to. You don't have a choice. The more you do anything in life, the better you get at it. And that's why it's very powerful if you guys ever want to sign up with our coaching program because um, we help you really get in the mix of doing it. Like we push you when, when a student hesitates, we just push them right over, not over the edge, but we push them in front of that company or whatever. And um, you get comfortable with it and then you can do it forever. And so I think G is right. You know, the more you do it, you might actually start to like things you didn't like. I got students that are engineers. They're like, I hate sales. Sales, sales, they're just a bunch of sales schmucks. And I'm like, well, we teach really isn't sales. You're just showing them your sell sheet. And I had engineers that really hated having to do that. And they started to actually kind of like it. Or they're like, well, I still don't like it, but I know I have to do it now. And they accept it. But if you're not accepting certain things you have to do when you're licensing, you will not be successful. Um, so you got to accept these things. Uh, okay, I, looks like I have five more minutes left. So roaming tortoise, didn't do one from roaming tortoise. And then I'll try to pick one or two more from somebody I didn't get to. So everybody kind of hope not everybody, I can't promise that, um, gets a chance. Uh, roaming tortoise says, Half Marcus here. I don't know what half Marcus means. When creating for the fitness market, there is a lot of online activity with Amazon and other websites. Should I limit my list of potential licensees? No. Reach out to everybody that is in, has distribution where you want to be. So if they're in Big Five or Dick Sporting Goods or here or there, with fitness products, um, there's actually, it's kind of a little bit of a cheat. You can type in list of major U.S. sporting good retailers and you'll find a Wikipedia article that lists all the major U.S. sporting good retailers. So there's probably a lot of retailers there. You can look for companies you can license to there. Um, but, you know, I, I would, you know, there's a lot of different types of fitness products. So look at your fitness product and look at the types of fitness products that are due. Like, um, if, if a company is just making dumbbells and stretchy bands and stuff, and you've got this, this machine, it's like, no, you're not going to approach a company that's making stretchy bands and just dumbbells, and they don't have a single machine in their product line with your entire new weightlifting machine. That wouldn't make sense. So you got to look at, kind of got to break down the fitness category and figure out which ones make sense. So hopefully that was helpful roaming toward us. Um, oh, okay. You're, you got a two-part question. That's why it said one of two. Okay. Those selling to brick and mortar also how to narrow down and vet the selection of online. Yeah, do what I just said. Break it out into categories. Figure out which ones. If they're, if a company is appropriate, if you look at their product line and then you look and you're going to find one of their products in a store, then you got to go find the company website, look at the whole product line. But if you look at their product line and you think your product's going to fit in, call every freaking one. No, don't limit your list in any way, shape, or form. No, no, no. Don't do not do that. So that's a great question. Um, oh, God. Uh, truth be told, said, I spent over 14000 for my provisional patent for blockchain technology patent application. I'm afraid to ask how much it will cost for the provisional patent application. Man, it just sounds like some patent attorneys are taking you guys to the bank. That's just messed up. 14,000 for a provisional patent application? My God. 
you could have written it with our software that we give our students for an entire six month of coaching with a sell sheet, virtual prototype, our solution to file a provisional patent, coaching every week and email anytime and access to a negotiation coach to help you close the deal. It's $3,500 and you can pay over six months. And you spent 14K on a provisional patent. That's messed up. That is so messed up. Um, and, you know, you said you're afraid of asking how much it would cost. You should have already known that. Your attorney should have said, okay, I'm going to file this like a full utility. That's ridiculous. Sounds like, wow. Um, and then this is how much it's going to cost to upgrade to a full utility if you do it. But just don't do that again. And the blockchain stuff, guys, I talk to people interested in the blockchain stuff. I'm not an expert at it. I find it fascinating. Um, but everybody thinks it's like the next gold rush. I, you know, um, yeah, man, I'm sorry. That's just that's just a lot to spend on a provisional patent. Um, let's see. Yeah, I have a patent attorney that would file a provisional for you for uh, $2,500. And then he would only charge another, uh, I think, about $1,500 to do the full patent which that is very unusually cheap. I think it's, I think maybe another 2000, but like 4,500 for a full utility and having done a provisional before, but I don't even recommend you do that. Just file a provisional yourself. Um, so, and that, that is unusually affordable, especially since I know he's good, but um, that, yeah, I don't know. Sorry, sorry, man. Um, Yeah. Ivy said the journey must have been even more fun once you license your first product, a mental game of having to prove it, prove, have proven it to yourself. I don't think you have to have licensed a product to have proven it to yourself. I think that once you make your sales, you file your provisional and you reach out to 20, 30 companies and some say yes, some of your sales sheets, some say no, we're not open. And then you get a little interest here or there. You've already proved it to yourself. You prove that this is doable. So I don't think that you need to have done that on your first product. That's that's like the wrong mindset. Now, Ivy, I get what you're saying, and I think it's great. But if you got some interest and you didn't license that, and I get students all the time, and I think I've given this tip on here before, but um, I'm like, well, a lot of times you're going to get, most of the time, you're going to get non-specific notes, not at this right, not at this time, not a right match. And guess what? Some of those people actually liked your idea. Well, Andrew, why wouldn't they tell me that? Because they're too busy. They've got tons of projects inundated with the email. They got a couple of bosses yelling, you know, telling them what to do all the time. They're like, I just don't have time for another project. They don't want to give you an inkling that they're interested because they then you're never going to go away. You know, so they say, you're like, well, that's messed up, Andrew. No, it's not. They're people just like you and me. So they say, not at this time, not a right match, and like that. And you get that from a lot of companies. And I'm not saying they're all thinking that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying there might be one or two that were thinking that. But so you put the project on the shelf, not the garbage can, because you believe in it. And companies didn't give you, if a company gave you, three companies gave you reasons why this thing won't work, you're not putting that on the shelf. You're putting that in the garbage can if you can't fix it. Okay. But a lot of time you're not getting that. A lot of times you're not getting that. So you put it on the shelf and you keep, you, you work on a new idea now. Okay. You don't cry. Oh, I couldn't license my first product. So I was, oh, this whole thing sucks. No, you start working on another product. And then like six, eight months later, you pull that old one off the shelf and it's the easiest thing in the world. You send all those same people that gave you non-specific notes. Don't resend it to somebody who said it won't work because of this. Don't do that. Okay. That's not professional. 
and some new ones. And if you want to take a look at it, go, oh, I could tweak my sell sheet a little bit. It's the easiest thing. I get people licensing all the time that way. So, and you know, I'll be honest with you. I started telling students to do that many, many, many years ago, not 20 years ago, because I would say only maybe about 10 years ago or so, because they wouldn't, they couldn't get past, they couldn't license their baby, their first product. And I didn't know that it would work out this well. And I just wanted to get past them. Like, Don't put it in the garbage can, put it on the shelf, resend it out. And they start working on their projects and it worked. My goal was to get them to work on a second project, right? Because they were like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And so then, but what started happening is people started licensing products based on that advice. And then it became part of our standard approach. Okay. So, um, so yeah, Ivy, it is very encouraging. But you don't have to license a product to be encouraged if you just get into some companies and maybe you don't even get interest from the companies, but you get into all these companies that should be encouraging. Then maybe a few show interest and maybe you don't do a deal because, well, I don't know, maybe maybe it won't work because this or that. We're not interested in this or that. And that should be encouraging. And it's a numbers game. You got to work on more than one product and you got to call a lot of companies for each project. And it's just the work. And that's why licensing is less about your product idea, more about a work ethic. Now, no, you can't license a lump of coal. But if you got this idea, it's like this slight tweak. It's not mind blowing. A lot of times our students can license those. But then if I had another student over here that is, wow, that's so cool, but he's half-assing the work, he will not license. He or she would not license. Okay, so you do not need to have great ideas. But one thing you do have to do 100% of the time is have a work ethic and do the work. Now, fortunately, that work, you can spend two to four hours a week doing that work or two to six hours a week doing that work. And then when you get good at it, you can even spend less because you got some companies built up you made relationships with by the ones that said no, because you have a relationship with them now. So hopefully that's helpful. Um, let's see. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's going to do the last one here, guys. It's a long question from Matt. I don't think I did one from Matt before. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for talk for for talking to us today. What can you tell a company phone operator that connects you to the that you want to connect you to the right person to talk to about your idea, and the company does does take outside submissions, um, but the operator doesn't know the right person to send you to. Um, or transfer you to. Okay, that's really common. Sometimes the operator doesn't like, they don't, they don't understand what the word licensing is. You might say, are you open to innovation? They don't know what that means. And so if you look at their product line ahead of time, you say, well, what about the marketing manager for such and such product line? I'll give you guys that one tip. What about the marketing manager for such and such product line? You know, of course you can use LinkedIn to reach out to. And you know, even better, if you go on LinkedIn and you might be like, well, I don't like to use LinkedIn. We got a few students that like to call instead, but they'll use LinkedIn to find the person's name. And then they'll ask for that person by name and they'll just put you right through. So you can say, what about the marketing manager? It's in charge such such product line. They can help you figure out who that is. Um, or you can find the name and you can just ask for that person by name. So those are just two little tips on phone stuff. There's a lot of stuff with the phone stuff, but hopefully those two tips were helpful. Um, so, Young, we got a whole program that teaches people how to reach out on LinkedIn for licensing. We do have a book, too, which you can get, LinkedIn for Licensing, by my partner Stephen Key and Benjamin Harrison. So you can buy that book as well. Um, but we can coach you through that, definitely. Um, 
All right. So I want to remind you guys to, to help me out. Um, if you're not subscribed, please down below. Um, in the last couple of months, we've doubled our subscriber rate every month, our number of people that subscribe that are new. So click down below on subscribe. If you're not subscribed, don't click on it. If you're already subscribed, because they'll unsubscribe. If you do that, click on it again, please. And make sure it says subscribe uh, or make sure Make sure you're subscribed and then click on the little notification button next to it. We've got over 800 videos on our website. Watch those videos. Give us thumbs up. That's the way you could say thank you to myself and Stephen and everybody at InventRight for me giving you a whole hour free of, of question and answer. And if you want to take advantage of our free resources, go to inventright.com and then click on that blue button in the upper right-hand corner. And then also there's a pop-up that comes up right now for our year-long webinar series that's completely free. And sign up for that as well. So those are two, three free things on inventright.com. The free resource in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage. And then look for the pop-up about the, the yearly webinar series. I think, I forget if it pops up on the services page or the homepage. If you haven't been to our website, I think it pops up on the homepage. Um, but make sure to subscribe to both of those. Um, you can also just subscribe to our newsletter. I think that's at the bottom of every page. And that'll get you um, notified of those things as well. So I remind you guys, take care, keep inventing. My name is Andrew Krauss. I'm the co-founder here at InventRight. Um, Steve and I have been running InventRight for the last 21 years. We have students in over 65 countries. And I've been happy to be of service. And I'll catch up with you guys next time. See you guys. Bye.